Chapter Nine of the Steel Hammer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Diana Beauvais. The Steel Hammer by Louis Albach. Translated by Elizabeth Warmly Latimer. Chapter Nine. Awakened. Jean was afoot early. The day clear and bright. To go and see the notary would take him about two hours, not more. He had only to cross the Bois de Boulogne. He promised Emilienne to come back with a sharp appetite and set forth gaily, after a hearty kiss to his wife and a lighter one to Florence, whom he wanted to leave asleep, poor little thing, after the various excitements of the preceding day. As he walked along, he dreamed dreams that he had had no chance to dream in the night. So sound had been his sleep during the night watches. The present he had received had been, indeed, a great act of friendship on the part of his cousin. Mechanics in towns who had given up their villages to better themselves and perhaps to become bourgeois are often unjust toward those who they leave behind them to the plough. Because he had thought himself a little more civilized than his cousin, he might have done him injustice. Under the rude husk of a horse-jockey or a cattle-dealer, there had been real feeling, the same as under the thinner skin of a citizen. Pierre's offer of having him live with him had not, he now saw, been a matter of calculation, and he had offered to take in Jean's wife and little girl. The upholsterer in one part of the wood breathed a vague odor of spring. He saw some pretty children coming toward him, three little girls whom their governess was taking to walk early, and who with the wind in their faces, their cheeks rosy nay reddened by the contact with the breeze which was a little too strong for them were laying in a store of health and gaiety before going indoors to their lessons jean thought to himself that boulogne was as much in the bois as st james but he had no governess to take florence into those beautiful walks and let her begin her day by enlarging all her being by breathing the fresh air and the invigorating odors of the trees one of these three little girls seemed exactly the same age as florence he could see that but what a difference there would be between them in complexion health and gaiety he felt jealous of the ruddy bloom on the cheeks of the child who was wealthy when he thought of his own pale child after all florence might have something better than the bois de boulogne she might go and live on a farm she might run in and out of the stables she might share the joys of village life without giving up his business now that he could keep on at it and pursue it again with every chance of success and ultimate prosperity why might he not send his wife and daughter to pass a month a two months at la testemurin he would only have to miss them during the week for on sundays very early he could take the eastern railroad and be with them by breakfast time pierre was a bachelor would it be proper that even in company with her little girl, Amelienne should go and stay with him? Bah! Anything was proper for Amelienne, so gentle yet so spirited, and after all, that was no great difficulty that might be settled even if they had to find a wife for Pierre, who would be much more likely to take kindly to matrimony now that a breach had been made in his heart and his natural kindliness had found a vent. My reader must not expect me to tell him all the dreams that Jean carried along with him in his basket of eggs, according to the Eastern story, or, as the French tell it, in his pot au lait. It is a universal fairy story, but it never seems to have any effect on anybody, 
and yet it ought to breed mistrust when the imagination runs away with us in daydreams popular wisdom has invented a long string of proverbs opposed to the intoxications of hope but people forget the proverbs each one thinks the little round stuffed cushion he bears on his head to support his milk pail or his egg basket will be secure his milk pail or his egg basket is not likely to upset nor its contents to be spilled or broken and he knocks boldly at the door of fate to leave her the cream that has been rising without ever thinking that fate may shut the door in his face crush him and kill him or at best that the door suddenly closing may knock him down jean opened the door of maitre boisselot's office with considerable confidence this time he was not afraid of a cold reception from the younger man as he knew himself to be no longer in need no longer a suppliant he felt that he could afford to bear the impertinence of young clerks who do not like being interrupted and besides he only wanted to ask them one question he went in the youngest of the three clerks saw him first and taking his feet from the second rung of his high stool said with an air both sarcastic and alarmed tiens talk of the devil the chief clerk stopped him and raising his head recognized jean mortier he got up and went toward him surprise was in his face and his eyes had a strange look in them what are you doing here monsieur i wanted to see maitre boisselot then you have not been arrested arrested who i jean's astonishment did not prevent his turning very pale fear and presentiment were stronger than amazement what has happened he stammered be off be off at once as fast as possible the police must be already at your house in search of you police in my house jean had been much shaken in the last two days his strength now failed him he stretched out a hand to catch hold of a chair the chief clerk who was quicker than he drew back the chair and pointing to the door said don't stay here another minute monsieur they are in search of you Motre Beausoleil is at this moment with georges d'instruction the georges d'instruction yes your coming here if they knew of it would be another proof against you you have come of course to ask us not to repeat what we overheard the day before yesterday no i wanted the address of my cousin pierre if you happen to know it jean did not ask this question as he had intended to ask it his voice trembled he had all the appearance of telling a lie a simultaneous exclamation broke from the three clerks they looked stupefied and all spoke at once what audacity said the first clerk you don't want his address said the second they'll take you before long to look at him go to the morgue said the third all jean heard or understood was this last reply uttered in sharp accents to the morgue he said has he met with any accident yes said the chief clerk he has been murdered murdered when a few hours after he met you here and that is why they are looking for you looking for me of course and that is the reason you had better not go home jean drew himself up to his full height but the indignation which had roused his spirit gave way when he thought that his wife and daughter if he were not in would have to encounter the police alone he uttered one cry and without saying another word rushed out of the office leaving the door open behind him the three clerks all came out into the street and watched him as he hastened away he is going to fling himself into the seine said the youngest he'll take the railroad and escape said the second 
no i think he is going home said the chief clerk and after all it is probably the best thing he can do jean rushed on at full speed as if he were pursued or attracted by a lodestone he barely paused from time to time to take breath every moment lost seemed to him to augment some monstrous unknown peril he could not think it all out he would not but many thoughts were passing through his brain what would Emilienne testify if she should be examined before he came? How would they interpret his having gone out early? Might they not fancy he was not coming back, that he was running away? On the contrary, he was going back. He was hurrying home as fast as he could go. He was afraid of nothing, no, not of anything. He was so perfectly innocent. But all the time that he persuaded himself there was no cause for fear, Jean felt the sharp spur of a dread he could not surmount pressing him forward. Oh, yes, of course he was innocent, but all his thoughts had not been innocent during the murderous night he had passed in the Bois de Boulogne. Oh, God, if they could only know how many times that night he had wished he could avenge himself upon his cousin for his hard-heartedness. His poor cousin! He grieved for him with his whole heart, and in the ardor of his gratitude and his regret for him, he said to himself, When I have proved that they have made a great mistake in suspecting me, I shall not be sorry to have endured the shame of having been suspected. It will be an expiation. I shall have suffered for his sake. He will know it where he is now in the skies. It will be part payment of the debt I owe him. Thus it will be seen that Jean was of the race of men whose vocation it is to be martyrs. When he reached the main street of Boulogne, where his own house was, he saw nothing unusual about the place. No crowd before the door, no sign of evil augury. He sighed and walked on more slowly. The window of the entresol was open. Amelienne, who was doing her morning's work, was shaking something out of it. Perhaps she was making a signal to somebody. In a few steps, he was in his shop. He had not strength to cross it and to run upstairs. He stopped and flung himself on a half-finished chair. The sound of the shop bell and the noise he made in entering brought down Emilienne. She thought it was a customer. Customers had been expected ever since they were relieved from fears of bankruptcy. She paused at the foot of the staircase, suddenly seized with alarm on seeing her husband in such a state of weariness and emotion. Had the joy of the night before been false? Had fresh debts been discovered? Had they got to give back the two thousand francs? Did Pierre Mortier desire to undo his good action? She dared not ask questions. Jean dared not speak. They looked tremblingly at each other with the vague smile seen on the faces of those who fall back inevitably into misfortune, and who have no way to protest against their fate but by bravado. At last, Emilienne, the braver of the two, asked, what has happened? He is dead, replied her husband hoarsely. Who? Cousin Pierre? Dead? Did he die suddenly? No, he was murdered. Emilienne had one moment, I will not say of doubt, for that would have made her guilty of mistrusting her husband, but of hesitation. Who told you? The clerks in the office. Who killed him? They don't know. A robber? Probably. How did anyone know he had any money? Oh, you ask more than I can tell you. Poor man, what a pity. Yes, indeed, what a pity, what a pity. Jean gave a start. He heard loud steps in the street. 
He became deadly pale and looked toward the door. Emilienne's glance followed his. She, too, grew pale. "'Why did you come back so fast?' she said, going up to her husband and wiping his damp forehead. "'I wanted to be here first. replied Jean, unfastening the bow of his cravat. First, Yes, before. He dared not finish his sentence. "'Who do you expect, then?' I don't know. The mayor, the commissaire of police, the gendarmes. The gendarmes, cried Emilienne, putting both hands on his shoulders and looking him full in the face. Yes, the gendarmes. It seems that they are coming to arrest me. Jean said this simply and almost quietly. Emilienne's eyes dilated. Her mouth trembled so that her words hardly passed her lips. They accuse you of having killed him? It seems so. Where? I don't know, and of having robbed him? Oh, they may search where they will. Jean was falling into a sort of stupor which alarmed his wife. She shook him. Come, Jean, be a man. Don't let yourself be cast down. Don't look as if you were guilty when you are innocent. It seemed to Jean as if she emphasized these last words. He rose electrified, and with an air of pride and confidence, which could never have been assumed by a man guilty of falsehood, cried, are you not certain of it? Oh, yes, I am, she answered, upborne by her faith in him, and gazing full with tender eyes into the loving, honest eyes of her husband. Oh, yes, I am quite certain. You will see what I shall say if I am called upon to testify. Indeed, don't be afraid, Jean. Every day somebody is accused unjustly, but people are never arrested without some proofs. And what proofs have they against you? None. None. You are right. All the same, it gives me a dreadful feeling to think they will be coming here to examine me. Oh, I had rather have a visit from the sheriff. I have not been long at peace. Those two thousand francs, I know, will bring misfortune. A strange idea suggested itself to him. Suppose the murderer, finding his address in Pierre Mortier's pocketbook, had been the one to slip the two thousand franc notes into the envelope so as to direct suspicion to him. The same idea occurred at the same moment to his wife. Where strong love exists, such simultaneous thoughts not unfrequently arise. Emilienne suddenly went toward the stairs. Where are you going, asked Jean, to burn that envelope? No, on the contrary, we must keep it. It will prove how I got two thousand francs. Emilienne shook her head. Did you hear the news at the notary's? Yes. Perhaps it is not true. Perhaps they were playing a joke upon you. No. Besides, that explains why we expected him in vain all yesterday. It explains nothing, replied Emilienne, recurring to the notion that they had both had and both concealed a few moments ago. For if he did not send you those notes himself, we might have expected him a long while. He sent them. I am certain of it. I know he did. I want to feel grateful to him for sending them, whatever happens to me. At this moment, the little girl, who had been left alone in their room upstairs and had not been able to follow her mother, began to come down. They heard her two little feet in her new shoes come pit-a-pat, each little foot joining the other upon every stair. She was humming a little song and putting her doll to sleep. The upholsterer's feelings suddenly overpowered him. Must she be made unhappy again, poor little thing? She has been so bright since yesterday. Go to her take her upstairs. If they come, if they come, here we all are. We will not leave you. And turning toward the stairs, Emilienne said motherly, 
that is in a tone of quiet softness which concealed her anguish florence here is papa come back come down and kiss him the child at this descended the last steps quickly and ran up to her father where is he she asked looking around she was expecting to see cousin pierre about whose coming they had all been talking since the night before she fancied they were hiding him to give her a surprise he is not coming said her mother ah oh, said the little one disappointed she held up a pretty scrap of red velvet to Emilienne, which she had turned into a cloak or a shawl for her doll to make her worthy to be introduced to cousin pierre Emilienne smiled jean had tears in his eyes he has gone to god said the upholsterer's wife ah yes said the child thinking of her prayer the night before i know he has because i asked god to take care of him after several hours of horrible expectation jean began to think that Emilienne might have been right when she suggested that maitre boisselot's clerks were playing a trick on him he recalled the whisperings the smiles and signs confusedly seen and heard by him during his first visit but jean lost his illusion when toward the close of the day three personages who did not give their names who had no need to explain their right to ask him questions came into his shop suddenly with their hats on shut the door behind them and appeared to take possession are you jean mortier asked the most solemn-looking of the visitors who must have been the commissary from the paris prefecture of the police the one belonging to the boulon was doubtless on the watch in the street yes monsieur replied the upholsterer calmly he had had time to collect himself besides his wife and child were at his side and that kept him from any display of emotion the day before yesterday you and your cousin pierre mortier met at the office of maitre boisselot to hear the reading of a certain will yes monsieur you expected a legacy i hope so a little you appeared much disappointed to find that everything had been left to your cousin i was in despair that is true you asked him to lend you something and he roughly refused you he refused me i don't know that he was very rough you left the notary's office in his company yes monsieur you went with him about fifty yards not more you were seen talking together and you threatened him who says that your gestures were observed yes i did threaten him i said that maybe i should kill myself and then he would be sorry it was mean of me to say that but that was all i said you did not follow him no monsieur where did you go when you left him jean became embarrassed he was ashamed to confess how broken down he had been and to tell these men of his despair and his dread of going back to his own home Emilian came boldly to the rescue he is ashamed to tell you monsieur that he was so discouraged that he spent all night wandering about weeping and lamenting doubtful if i were brave enough to bear the news he would bring home with him and leaving me to pass a night of terrible anxiety yes we know that already from people in the village who saw him come home at early morning jean and emilienne felt surprised that the neighbors had been examined before any questions were put to them the examination was continued where did you pass the night in the bois this reply greatly astonished the commissary he had not expected so decided and ready an answer do you know he resumed where your cousin went when he parted from you somewhere in paris for he sent me a letter with the paris postmark what 
Did he write to you after he left you ?" Jean explained that he had not written to him, but that he had sent him, in an envelope, two thousand francs. He related how it happened that the address on the envelope was in his own handwriting. The commissary had no doubt learned through his preliminary inquiries in the neighborhood that Jean, the day before, at the second delivery of the letters, had received two banknotes and had used them to pay his creditors. Before coming to his house, he had also received the testimony of the butcher, who, with an effusion that was damaging to those in whom he took an interest, told all about the young couple's poverty, the state of prostration in which Jean had returned home, and his sudden change of demeanor the next day. The commissary, therefore, knew that the upholsterer had told everybody he had received a letter. The circumstance of the address, however, seemed to throw light on some point that had been obscured to him. What have you done with the envelope? Torn it up? Burned it? No, monsieur. I kept it as something sacred, a souvenir of my cousin's good action. Go and fetch it, Emilienne. The wife, who was standing pale and resolute, her little girl in front of her, held where she stood by a light touch with the ends of her fingers, made as if she would put Florence aside, but the commissary stopped her. There is no need. We can see it later. Then turning to Jean, so you tell me you passed the night in the Bois de Boulogne. I can swear it. Do you know that your cousin, Pierre Mortier, has been murdered? Yes, monsieur. The commissary made a movement, and Emilienne frowned. The official thought the upholsterer absolutely impudent. His wife thought him too confident in the power of his innocence. How did you know of his misfortune? This morning, from the clerks of Monsieur Boissolot. What took you this morning to the notaries? I wanted my cousin's address. From the moment I received the two thousand francs, I felt intensely grateful to him. I had been expecting him all yesterday. We had got up a little dinner for him. I wanted to know where he was staying in Paris. That was what took me to the notaries, and there I learned that he had been murdered. I was terribly grieved. They told me also that I was wanted, that I might be suspected, and so, because I do not fear being accused, I came home as quickly as possible to my wife and little girl, and here you find me, monsieur. Do I look like a murderer? Do we look like a family of highway robbers? Look at us. Jean pointed to his wife, pale but smiling proudly, and to his little girl, who was looking up innocently at the officers of justice, without understanding what was going on. He himself looked resolute and true. He had spoken calmly, but his voice had that vibration that comes from deep feeling. The commissary was not insensible to what he saw before him, but his feelings were divided between a humane desire to believe in what seemed true and the anxiety of an official not to be taken in by any species of acting. Indeed, the misocin in this case was so perfect that it rather deterred him from believing in its reality. Do you know, said he, after a moment's silence, where your cousin was murdered? No, monsieur. In the Bois de Boulogne, near here. Jean could not prevent his teeth from chattering, and immediately, after a pain in his head, made him pass his hand over his hair. Emilienne shut her mouth tight to keep back a sigh. The fear that had been passing off came back stronger than ever. Her hand leaned heavily upon her little girl. In the Bois, stammered Jean, in the bois near here? Ah, oh, now I comprehend. He was coming to see us. In the middle of the night? That is very improbable. He may have set out before it was dark. 
No, for we followed him up in Paris till one o'clock in the morning. Then I don't understand it, murmured the upholsterer, who began to feel his brain reel. You received two thousand francs, continued the commissary of police. Yes, monsieur, two thousand. Do you know how much your cousin had in his pocketbook when he left the notaries? Yes, twenty-five thousand francs. The commissary looked round him, saw a little office desk covered with Jean Mortier's account books. He pointed it out to those under him. They asked for the keys of the different drawers. They are all in the locks, replied Amelian. You will find nothing there but sheriff's papers. And in truth, though the police officers searched the drawers, pulled them out, and turned them over, they could find nothing but protested notes, writs, and judgments. The search of the house was thus begun, and it went on. Jean and Emilienne assisted in it eagerly. The cross-examination being now suspended, they had the chance to think, to hope that the commissary would declare himself satisfied, in other words, mistaken. The police could not, of course, find 23,000 francs in the house. In five minutes, they might hope to get rid of them. End of chapter 9. Recording by Deanna Beauvais.